0: Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eye was odd. He shaved
1: the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. He trod a path that few have trod, did Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street.
0: It's Friday, November 26th, 2021. Stephen Sondheim, one of Broadway history's songwriting titans, whose music and lyrics raised and reset the artistic standard for the American stage musical, died early Friday at his home in Roxbury, Connecticut. He was 91. So writes Bruce Weber of the New York Times in the obituary for Mr. Sondheim. As soon as I heard the news, I called Peter Felicia to get his thoughts on the passing of Stephen Sondheim. Peter Felicia is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Peter, what are your thoughts on the passing of Mr. Sondheim?
1: Well, of course, when anybody's 91 years old, we can't be surprised, and yet we're always surprised when somebody dies no matter what happens because we just have this optimism in our lives that we just feel that people will go on forever. But the reality is of course that people don't and we're lucky to have had him for 91 years. Yeah. So, uh, that's really, you know, um, but, uh, his impact is um, is certainly something that will always be there. Um, we're going to see his shows now and forever. I just wonder, I'm in Boston, I just wonder what it was like last night to be at Company, or Assassins, um, because that must have been such an emotional performance at each uh, theater uh, when this was going on. Um, so... <sighs> Yeah, it's funny, you know, when you when you look back on things like this, you always come down to one lyric, Um, and the lyric that I'm coming back to more than any else is uh, one that actually came in his very first produced show. Um, It's it's a lyric that passes by very quickly. I'm not sure that people really notice it as much as they should. It took me a while to notice it. When I was a kid, I I just accepted it as um, part of a song. But when you think about it, when Tony and Maria. And tonight are singing, make this endless day, endless night. When you really look at that line, and especially from somebody who was 27 years old, it really is remarkable, because what they're essentially saying is, we've been waiting all day for tonight, and it seemed like tonight would never come. It seemed like the day would be endless. But what they wanted was an endless night, meaning that, of course, once they got together, they never wanted the night to end. And that really um, seems to be applicable in this situation because um, it seemed like we were going to have an endless day with him, but no, um, it had to end, of course. But in terms of the night, when you think, I'll stretch the metaphor here a little, but when you think of it, how many nights there will be now when we do have Sondheim musicals playing, there's going to be a rash of them, of course, because people are going to want to celebrate uh, the greatness that was there. And what will happen as a result of that, I'm convinced, is that a lot of people who haven't responded to his work will now respond to it because they'll have more chances. I remember when Into the Woods opened and Frank Rich didn't much like it. Uh, he was a critic for the New York Times at, at that time. Uh, he said, time and second hearings always uh, apply to a time score. Um, frankly, he did then say, uh, but this one makes the mildest first impression of all, but it is true. The time and second hearings did do it, which of course indicates how complicated and complex some of the work was, but we always had to catch up with it. We always did. And what's really interesting to me is what it must've been like on September 22nd, 1965, because that's the day, do I hear a waltz closed? Now I went to several, um, events where Sondheim was speaking, and there would be Q&As afterwards, and somebody would inevitably say, Mr. Sondheim, what's your favorite show of all you've written? And he would always answer, I heard this at least six times, I don't have a favorite, I have a least favorite, do I hear a waltz? Now, um, that September day, when that closed in 1965, understand he was writing with Richard Rodgers, um, now, Richard Rogers, of course, was the dean of American musical theater at that moment in time. I mean, he was the guy who really um, still was counting. Now, think about it this way. When Oscar Hammerstein died in 1960, the next time Richard Rogers wrote a show, it was No Strings. It may not be a famous show, but it ran 580 performances, which was a big deal in those days, and he won Best Score. Um so that's pretty impressive so the point is there he was doing his own lyrics and won best score okay now in the meantime only a few weeks after no strings open so did a funny thing happen on the way of the forum and the feeling was that a funny thing happened was a success in spite of Sondheim. so not because of them in spite of them because it does have that terrific book by Larry Goldbart and Burt Shevlov. And um, though they weren't built in that way, it's just <laughs> Larry Goldbart became more famous as time went on, and for good reason. But anyway, um, when the Tony nominations rolled around, um, because technically funny thing was in the next season, Sondheim didn't even get a nomination. Now, the next time Sondheim wrote a show was Anyone Can Whistle, where he was writing his own music and lyrics, okay? Nine performances. Think about this. Richard Rodgers writing his own lyrics, 580 performances, best score. Stephen Sondheim writing his own music, nine performances, no Tony nomination. So the point is, when they went into that partnership to do Do I Hear a Waltz, what was going on there was that Rodgers was coming from a place of strength, while Sondheim wasn't. And it didn't work out because Rodgers treated Sondheim terribly, And even to the point of which saying, uh, this is shit, for a lyric he wrote in front of the entire company. Well, you can't go complaining to the producer because the producer was Richard Rogers. So this is why it was such a terrible experience from him. Now, think about it. This is 1965. Do I Hear a Waltz opens in March, right around the same time that The Sound of Music movie opens. So as a result, Rogers is flying high. He's ostensibly written two new songs for the for the movie. It's often been said he didn't write um, I Have Confidence in Me, but what do I know? Anyway, <clears throat> but he's riding high. This is going to be the biggest grossing picture uh, since Gone with the Wind. Um, inflation-wise, uh, it may even eclipse it. But the thing is that Sondheim is now experiencing this setback with Do I Hear a Waltz? while Rogers is flying high. He doesn't need Do I Hear a Waltz. It's not important to him. So what? You know, here he was working with this new guy, giving this new guy a chance, this new guy who hadn't had as, nearly as much success as he. But anyway, and I can do it without you, Steve. I just wrote these two songs for this movie, and look what's happening to this movie. So that's March, and then September, as I say, the show closes. Now, for the next five years, there is no Sondheim show. None. There is a TV show, Evening Primrose. And what's interesting about that, very interesting about that, is that the opening song is actually called If You Can Find Me, I'm Here. And that's essentially what was going on with Stephen Sondheim. He was essentially hidden. If you could find him, he was raring to go. He wanted to write shows. He wanted to write this show called The Girls Upstairs, a murder mystery um, set in the old days of uh, entertainment. But nothing was really happening, and nobody was really knocking on his door while Rogers was having this wonderful success. So for five years, he was so written off. I remember so vividly people, hey, he's done, you're going to hear from him again. And look what happened. Five years After the failure of Do I Hero Walls? Almost to the day, Company opens. And again, Company wasn't tremendously appreciated, um, certainly not by the New York Times. In fact, when Follies opened a year later, what was really interesting was that Clive Barnes said, I liked it more than Company. And they took a big ad. Saying company winner best musical winner best lyrics winner best music um, it, it, there's an interesting metaphor there too. only once in the history of the Tony's only once have they given separate awards for music and lyrics and it was the company year and Sondheim won isn't it interesting that he won twice the awards that anybody else has ever won in a single year for a score I find that extraordinarily interesting and um, and who knew that it was just the beginning that company that uh, but he Now, suddenly, a lot of people were saying, wow, this is really something. Even if Clive Barnes didn't. Now, it wasn't that enormous a success. Um, I've often wondered what would have happened if, indeed, the musical Applause had opened the same season as Company. Applause opened uh, at the end of March. The cutoff date was April 1st. And Company opened um, uh, three weeks later. What would have happened if Company had gone up against Applause? And here's my feeling. I believe that if the Tonys had taken place in June, as they now tend to be, Applause would have won, which it did win, uh, by the way. Um, I believe Applause would have beaten company then, at that moment in time, because the album would have just come out, and a lot of people wouldn't have heard it. But if the Tonys had worked on a year basis, the way the Oscars do, the year 1970, as opposed to the 1969-70 season, 70-71 season, what would have happened? I believe his company would have won Best Musical over applause because people would have heard that score over and over because a lot of us played that record over and over and over. And again, time and second hearings uh, really count with Sondheim scores. So I think that would have happened. But little did we know that indeed that was going to be the case, that he was going to come up with five terrific musicals in uh, the the uh, 70s. What was really interesting was the first night of Little Night Music in Boston. I was there. Um, January 20th, 1973, a day I have not forgotten. And the point is that every human being I knew, every human being I knew who cared about musical theater was there that night. I'm not just talking about Boston. I'm talking about people flying in from New York, anybody I'd ever met. I mean, it was amazing to me how after Company and Follies who could wait for a second performance. And again, time and second hearings, the person I went with, um, who was an usher at the Colonial who used to uh, get me in, um, during the second act said, there hasn't been one good song this entire night and I literally heard the vamp, da 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 da. And I said, I have a good feeling about this one. I swear that's true. I swear that's true. And I'll take a polygraph test and I'll pass because that really happened. And um years later, when I ran into Bill again, um, you know, gee, that little night music, what a score, huh? You know, it it <laughs> he was just too far above us. Um, that's what it really came down to. And um, but he elevated us, which was really quite wonderful. So, um, and it's so funny when you think of it. The little night music is based on a lot of um, tempe in three-quarter time. There are variations of it, there are 6-8 and what have you, but nevertheless, three-quarter was... and So what we're talking about is waltzes. Isn't it interesting that <laughs> do I hear a waltz was his <laughs> most miserable experience, and yet he would write a whole score that involved um, three-quarter or 6-8 time of, of variations thereof. So, um, so the waltz experience in 65 didn't uh, keep... From writing waltzes um, in 1972, 3. So, um, you know, um, <clears throat> the next one was tremendously controversial, and that, of course, was Pacific Overtures. And the thing is, when you look at that, what an ambitious show. I mean, who wrote music in the Japanese style? I mean, when did that happen? I mean, uh, was Lute Song in 1946? Is that what it was? I mean, maybe, but I mean, this really was amazing to to think that he would stretch himself in this way. And that was the point of Saw Time so many times. When you really look at it, it's very interesting that around that time he wrote a song called I will Never I Never Do Anything Twice because that's what he was. He never did do anything twice. I mean, when you think of it, um, <laughs> because um, um, the funny thing was based on ancient Roman plays. OK, we're not going to count do our heroes because he doesn't either. Company was based on unproduced one act plays. Follies was actually based on a photograph. You saw a photograph of Darth. Um, um, n- 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 well, to be fair, it was Hal Prince who found it, but the point is, Follies really took its inspiration from a photograph of Darth. I'm um, sorry, uh, Gloria Swanson standing in the middle of the uh, rubbles of the Roxy Theater. Um, and that was, so a photograph was really very important. Then you had a foreign play for Little Night Music. You had an unproduced um, play um, dealing with Japan. Um, then came Sweeney Todd, uh, which was essentially an opera. Leonard Bernstein said, in in a book once, someday Sondheim will write an opera and he will knock your eyes and ears out. And that exactly happened in 1979, which is what is generally considered his masterpiece. So, um, so that's really something. And yet in 1981, which was really interesting, he wanted to write something that was truly a musical comedy. I mean, sure. Um, a musical comedy with a Snell Grant shoe, because what we have of course, um, is, uh, a character who's a producer who turns out, uh, well, a songwriter who turns into a producer who, um, um Isn't such a nice guy, but nevertheless, the score really reflects musical comedy, which is why it's the last great overture in um, musical theater history, because most shows don't even have them anymore. But that overture in Merrily We Roll Along really does indicate you are going to see a musical of yore. And that's what he was really interested in writing. And the fact that um, it wasn't successful. And they were so smart to close it out to 16 performances because that made everybody say, oh, I can save it. And that's why we've had so many productions since. If they had run 193 performances like Big did, nobody would be much interested. But the fact that they said, OK, we're done. You don't want us? All right. Fine. We apologize. We'll leave. Thank you. Um, made it really uh, quite a, quite an event um, in, um, in regional theater, in college theater, in high school theater. I've seen it in all those places. So. So there he was writing in his warmest style yet, which was really something. Um, and then, you know, to go to a completely new collaborator, you know, in 1984, when suddenly he's 54 years old and he's starting with somebody new uh, who has no experience with musicals, but he just had a feeling this guy would be right. And they had so many good collaborations. I mean, it's really most interesting to think Sunday in the Park with George. And of course, he always gives James Lapine credit. For saying um, when you look at that painting, uh, the Surat painting, who's missing Surat? And that was one of the things that really galvanized Sondheim into saying, "Wow." Wow. You know, that is the show. Yes, indeed. Let's talk about him. And um, it, I remember so vividly everybody complaining about the scenery in merrily we were along. It looks like the cost of $1. fifty. Well, nobody had that complaint with Sunday in the Park with George. I mean, it was really so beautiful, especially at the end of the first act when you saw that painting. And you know, I mean, and the second act begins, and there they are in the same, essentially, the same situation, and then suddenly the stage is going, <laughs> it's empty, and what is going on here? Again, he had to do something completely different, um, completely. Everything what you have there is truly an original musical, and it it, it got into a lot of um, controversy because a lot of people say, well, I don't know has to do with the first act and why change horses in midstream. But uh, what's really interesting about Sunday, of course, is the fact that while um, Dot in the first act is complaining about the fact that the guy just wants to work. All he wants to do is paint. He doesn't want to go to the Follies. Uh, He doesn't want to have a good time. And she's going to marry somebody she doesn't really, really love, but I mean, she's going to take her happiness where she can find it. In the second act, Huh. The, the granddaughter uh, is um, uh, the daughter, sorry, is um, bragging about um, Surratt, you know, and she wouldn't have bragged about him if he said, okay, let's go to the Follies. I don't need to do the painting. And that's the point of Time too. He had to do it. He had to do it. He did talk about giving up after Merrily. I'm going to write murder mysteries. Well, what happened? Where were those murder mysteries? There was one that wasn't very good, and it was done in collaboration with a guy who did Merrily, but I mean, really... Yeah, uh, I I did a thing with him uh, for Continental Airlines when Passion was happening, and what I remember vividly was when I wrote the the copy for the um, actual stand. They were they were doing a video for Continental Airlines when you got to New York, they would play it, um, and uh, you would see here's something you can do while you were in New York. And um, I said, I remember it, I don't remember the entire introduction, but I do remember coming to the conclusion. Uh, Stephen Sondheim's Passion is on Broadway, and I meant that literally and figuratively, that his passion musical was on Broadway, but his passion was Broadway. And he's often said, he. I'm using not past tense, and it's hard to actually come to that, he did often say that um, Oscar Hammerstein, is mentor, if he had been a geologist, I would have turned out a geologist. And that is so fascinating when you think of it, that he went into this business partly because he admired Oscar Hammerstein. So, and, but obviously <laughs> it can't just be that it was Oscar's, um, mentoring that famous episode when he was 15 and he brought his musical to him and, uh, uh, Oscar Hammerstein said, it's the worst thing I've ever read, but let me tell you why. I mean, it can't just be tutelage. There had to be that <laughs> talent there. Um, and, I just read a quote um, a little earlier. Sondheim saying, "I was lucky," and he was, and he was. I mean, if his mother didn't know uh, the Hammersteins, uh, if they didn't live nearby, if he hadn't forged a friendship with the boys, the sons, what would have happened? What would have happened? And of course, Hammerstein liked Sondheim more than he liked his own kids, which often happens. Um, <laughs> the people, you know, have issues with their own kids, which they live with day um, after day after day. To quote a lyric. Um, and uh, um Hammerstein actually made the statement, "Both of my sons would make one good man and um I, but he found that one good man in Sondheim became the surrogate son, and we're very lucky of course, that that happened, just as Sondheim said he was lucky that that happened but and it's so interesting that quotation about into the woods you know um the mildest first impression of all. And even though it didn't outrun Funny Thing, which is still the longest show that he had um, of all his musicals, um, 965 performances, I think Into the Woods was 787, something like that. Um, Yeah, Into the Woods is the one that really lasts. There's a, a, a wonderful festival for young people in Atlanta every year, the Junior Theater Festival. and. A guy gets up there and he makes kids say, I, uh, and you're supposed to say, I, you know, will always, will always, that type of thing. And they all do some sort of pledge, pledging themselves to musical theater. And it ends with, so help me Sondheim. Mm-hmm. And everybody says, so help me Sondheim. And what's uh, to be fair, I truly believe that that would mean nothing to those kids if it weren't for Into the Woods. Because I don't think there are many children's productions of some Sondheim show. I have seen Follies in a High School at Westfield High School in New Jersey, where they have a phenomenal drama director who just makes his kids really jump over hurdle over hurdle after hurdle in the best sense of the word. They're terrific productions. But by and large, um, you're not going to see many children doing Sondheim shows. So Into the Woods is the one that's going to keep his name alive I think more than any other, because kids will continue to do it, especially the into the woods junior version, which only uses the first act because so things get pretty door in the second act. And, you know, I mean, people die that you don't expect you're going to see dying. I mean, there's death. Um, and, um, but in the first act, um, it's by and large, you know, the fairy tales that uh, we grew up with and, um, and there they were. So, um, and to think that he actually made a musical out of a title because the famous story goes that um, he saw a script on a desk saying assassins. He just saw the title, the title. And he said, whoa, what an idea for a musical. Now, of course, a lot of people have said, what are you talking How can you, my, the, the, the assassins are you out of your mind? And it was pretty horrifying when it was first produced because we weren't used to it. But when you think of it, the famous expression that Frank Lesser gave that people sing when their emotions are just too high that they can't speak anymore. Well, doesn't that apply to assassins? These are people who are very passionate, needless to say, and are willing to go to their death uh, to prove that they're um, as passionate as they are just to get the job done. I mean, that's why that fascinating line in the early um, scene uh, with John Wilkes Booth and his accomplice, uh, when the accomplice says, um, we were crazy to think we could get away with it. And John Wilkes said, we did get away with it. What he means is, of course, that the job got done. What they really wanted to accomplish got done. It, that was the important part to him. What happens afterwards, that's another story. But but to think that this actually came from a title, that all of a sudden he wanted to do this. And of course, he went back to his Pacific Overtures um, collaborator, John Wideman, a terrific book writer in that final scene is amazing beyond belief. Um, So that was something. And then, you know, here he is doing an Italian film, um, Passion, which uh, really was a very maverick idea, too. I mean, the fact that you would have um, an unattractive woman, um, certainly those moles on her face didn't help her at all um that that is not the type of heroine you usually find in musicals, but that didn't stop him and um and he certainly wrote this show and it was so wonderful that when Donna Murphy tried um audition for it. That um, she almost got the job on the spot because he really felt that she had exactly what he wanted. But you know, you have to be smart enough to know exactly what you want, and he knew that's what he wanted, and uh, so there was no equivocating on that. Um, he often said, "You know, I can't believe I spent so much time on the show known as Wise Guys, known as Gold, known as Bounce, uh, known as Road Show. Uh, I, I might even be missing a title. I wouldn't be surprised if I am." Um, that he spent so much time on it, but, um, and certainly in his two books, finishing the hat and look on mirror hat, there's an inordinate amount of pages, um, dealing with, um, this, this project rather than have me repeat the titles again, this project, which really shows that even at that age, he was very interested in getting it right, getting it right. That was the important thing to him. Well, what always amazes me always is the song Uptown, Downtown, which was written for Follies, about a woman who likes being in high-class situation but also likes to let her hair down and be in lesser uh, situations. Um, So the lyric goes, she sits at the Ritz with her splits of mums, but then she pines for some steins with her village chums. But with with a schlitz in her mitts, down at Fitzroy's bar, she thinks of the Ritz. Oh, it's so schizo. Now that's incredible. And yet, when Michael Bennett said, "You know, maybe you could do something else," he didn't say, "Excuse me, excuse me," but I had a show on Broadway where you were still in grammar school. Uh, this is a terrific song; it's staying in. And he said, "All right, I'll try something else." And that's how the story of Lucy and Jesse happened. I mean, that's amazing that you throw something of that quality out. I mean, any other writer who wrote a show and came up with something like that wouldn't even begin to entertain the thought of replacing it. Are you kidding? Look at this. Look what's what's achieved here. Are you out of your mind thinking that that's going to be replaced? No, no. But Sunday said, oh, let me see what I can do. Yeah, and that's really amazing, amazing. A lot of people had issues with follies, needless to say. So in 1987, when there was that London production, Okay. He wrote some new songs for it. And some people like them and some people don't. I think but Underneath is a terrific song. Um, so a lot of people say, oh, that song Country House doesn't quite fit uh, with the rest of the score. Yeah, but it's an amazing piece of material about a husband and wife who say, oh, we got to do something with our marriage. And you can tell by the end of the discussion that even though they're now going to go out and buy a country house, that's not going to solve anything. It's an amazing song, an amazing song. So, but which (laughs) there are very few that aren't amazing. Let's come right down to it. So, um, so I do believe, you know, that we are going to have many endless days and endless nights of, um, listening to and watching Stephen Sondheim musicals.
0: So Peter, let me ask you a few questions here. Um, something that we usually reserve to ask others i'm going to ask you the music or the lyrics which which when oh. you were when you were listening to a Sondheim property that you've never heard before did you listen to the music or the lyrics or which got you first
1: no question the lyrics i'm sure that would disappoint him because he always wanted to uh stressed that he was a, a composer. And uh, remember, uh, he almost didn't do Gypsy because he wanted to do the whole score. And Ethel Merman, who had not had a good experience with um, two um, rookie songwriters uh, a few years earlier, said, no, I want an established uh, composer. And so Julie Stein um, came in. And um, he was going to quit. And Oscar Einstein said, no, you're going to write for a star. That's a big opportunity. You know, so you so uh, he'd be a little disappointed to hear that um, so many of us would prefer um, if we had to really count on it. The lyrics would be the one that really grabbed us first. But and I think when, when Frank Rich said time and second hearings, I think he was talking about the music and not the lyrics, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, though I guess it's easy to miss some of the lyrics. I mean, I was at the very, 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 very first performance company uh, in Boston back in 1970, and I have to say, getting married today, what is she saying? Oh my God, you know, because <laughs> it's going a mile a minute, more than a mile a minute. I mean, they should have given her a speeding ticket, you know, and that was a lot to assimilate. And I mean, it took me a long time listening to the cast album to finally realize what she was saying. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, forgive me, uh, Mr. S, but um, the lyrics grabbed me first. But certainly for those people who say um, he uh, he he just couldn't write a tune you can hum, as he parodied himself in uh, Merrily We Roll Along," um, "Pretty Women," uh, mm-hmm. "Pretty Lady." Um, <laughs> needless to say, "Send in the Clowns." These are beautiful songs. There are plenty of beautiful songs um, mm-hmm. in the Sondheim repertoire. So, um, but still, when um, Verdon once sang a song. Sang a song on a on a TV show. Fifty one percent uh, of my heart is gold. Forty nine percent is not. Um, and, uh, it's, it's all about just a little bit, uh, on one side, not the other. So I'm going to, um, plead here that it's 51% lyrics and 49% music.
0: All right. Um, also, I wanted to ask you if, um, uh, what, what do you feel is maybe the most underappreciated, uh, song or piece of uh, work or something from Mr. Sondheim that you you feel doesn't get its due or maybe just be obscured and uh, not enough people know about it?
1: Definitely Pacific Overtures, even though it ran, um, I think, 160-some-odd performances. Um, it was never a hot ticket. Uh, very few of shows were, frankly. But it's it's so strange because it has to be strange. It's a different culture we're dealing with. I mean, granted, you know, Little Night Music takes place in Sweden. But I mean, uh, <laughs> we can appreciate the values that are lack of values that are going on there. But Pacific Ocean is a completely different world. And especially, uh, it's very off-putting for a lot of people to even see the fact that the Japanese were so... Um, a, um, <laughs> unwilling to, uh, to welcome Americans. And I remember people at times say, well, it's, a, it's an insult to Americans, you know, that they really feel that we would corrupt their land. They actually had to put down carpets so that uh, we wouldn't actually corrupt the land. I mean, people say, but, you know, to, to look at a different culture Um, is really something, uh, and to do it so smartly. I will never forget, I remember exactly where I was sitting at the Schubert Theater in Boston when I saw Pacific Overtures, and I remember exactly during that song, A Bowler Hat, You know, really understanding what was going on when um, I read Spinoza every day for Madabla. Well, there's a Japanese man who, uh, his forebears of many uh, generations earlier, would certainly not be interested in reading Spinoza and would not use a French word to describe it. So um, I remember really. uh, there was a general manager named Charlie Willard who always used to talk about the moment of alignment, when you really understand what a show is doing, that it aligns itself. And that was it for me. But uh, a lot of people just didn't get which just because it was just too strange. And it, the term sui generis, meaning one of a kind, <laughs> so many <laughs> sometimes shows could apply there, but none more than Pacific Overtures, and um, and it's very rarely done. And um, part of the reason, too, is um, when it was done, uh, of course it was done with all Asian people. Now, I don't know if there would have been um, such a brouhaha if it had been done a la... Flower Drum Song, um, which granted was 18 years earlier when they used virtually all uh, Caucasian people in the role, but they really wanted Asian people. And um, that might have been out of political correctness, but um, uh, that they were fearful of getting a backlash. But nevertheless, they did it. And, you know, finding Asian actors at that time who could do difficult material uh, couldn't have been easy, but they stuck to their guns, and they certainly um, did that. They got the people they needed, and it was a terrific cast. Um, I'm very fortunate to have seen it in each of the three cities it played because it tried out in Boston. And then it went to Washington, and I was married to a woman in Baltimore at the time, and uh, we went down there for Christmas. And so I went to see it again. And then I saw it the week that closed in New York, where uh, the performance was like a religious ceremony. The people were just going crazy um, at that opening number. Um, I, really, uh, it, it must have been a minute and a half of applause and cheers. Um, because people get very sentimental when they know a show is closing and um, and that's what was going on here so a remarkable remarkable piece of work and the toughest assignment I think he ever had um, and uh, pretty amazing uh
0: and and lastly before we wrap up for uh today um, uh, so uh mr. Sondheim's passing has uh, has brought him yet again into uh, the spotlight where a lot of people who yeah. may not be Broadway fans are saying, oh, oh, I, I, I know this song or I know this play and not, not so much been students of Sondheim the way that uh, many of our listeners would be. But uh, what is a, a good book for the person who's just starting out in the Sondheim world to read up on Sondheim?
1: Um, uh, the new edition, newer edition of the uh, first book that was really written about him, uh, Sondheim and Company, uh, Craig Zayden, um did a phenomenal job in um, – but that's an excellent primer. But so, of course, and I all please recommend this writer, period, Ethan Morden. Ethan Morden wrote a book about Sondheim about mm, three, four years ago. I, um, I don't remember the actual title. Um, certainly the word Sondheim is in it. But that's a real primer. A lot of people were very disappointed in that book because it didn't go into a tremendous detail. But uh, but as I was reading, I said, oh, I understand what, what he's doing. He's really doing a book for people who don't know anything about this guy. And that's fine. So uh, those two, I think, are really the most valuable ones. I mean, needless to say, there are so many books about him. and. Um, some of them are, are very complicated um, <laughs> books with musical stats in them, <laughs> printed, certainly discourage a lot of people thinking, oh, wow, uh, obviously I have to know how to read music. And since I don't, um, you know, this book is uh, just uh, too tough for little me. So um, So uh, How Sondheim Found to Sound is an excellent book, but uh, nevertheless, it's uh, a few steps above the others. So I would highly recommend the Craig Zaden and the Ethan Morden books.
0: So I see uh on amazon here uh on Sontime an opinionated guide is that the one
1: or is there if so the, by ethan right yeah you know, that if it's if that if it's ethan that's the one I'm thinking of yeah mm-hmm. so uh yes, I recommend that highly for but you know i i think our list is uh maybe beyond uh <laughs> that, sure. uh that phase you know what i mean so uh, uh But uh, they're all good in one way or another, and they all come up with stories and facts that you don't uh, see in other places. So um, it's really so sad that uh, there has to be such a flurry of interest only when somebody dies. Um, You might say, well, there is a flurry of interest if he has one show off Broadway now and one on. I mean, really, you know, I mean, and both of those shows were shows that were supposed to happen before COVID. And we all know that there are some shows. That were announced to be done uh, before COVID were canceled totally. Yeah, you know, and isn't it interesting that both Company and Assassins were not? That they exist, but Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf doesn't exist. Hangman doesn't exist. Mean Girls doesn't exist anymore. You know, um, Frozen doesn't happen anymore here. So, isn't it interesting the resiliency? And that's what's so important there too. You know, the resiliency. During those five years, what was it like? But obviously, he still believed he had it in him. I mean, when you think of it, 1965, he's 35 years old. Granted, in baseball, that's an old man. But, you know, as, <laughs> that's the first year you can be president of the United States. That's the uh, the minimum um, that you uh, you have to be 35. And uh, so just as presidents uh, find their lives beginning <laughs> at 35, uh, so did Stephen Sondheim, really, because uh, to use a Frank Sinatra song, he did it his way. I mean, there's no question about that. And I remember somebody who knew him in the 60s. I didn't know him, but I knew a friend uh, who knew him who said, someday they'll understand. And I, I I, do think of that every time I see Assassins, when John Wilkes' book says, they will understand it later. Um, he's talking about a very different circumstance, but nevertheless – that's what's happened to so many people. They will understand it later. They have understood it later.
0: Thank you so much for joining us uh, from your trip to Boston, Peter. We really appreciate it. We'll, we'll talk to you next week, okay?
1: I look forward to it. You and
0: I, we get continued next week. Most friends fade or they don't make the great. New ones are quick, made and it up, pinch sure they'll do but us old friend wants to discuss old friend here's to us who's like us damn few
1: so old friends fill me in slow old friends start from hello old friend I want the when where and how old do tend to
0: become old, have it? never knew how much I missed you till now Most friends fade or they don't make the grade New ones are quickly made, some of them were something too But us, old friends, wants to discuss, old oh, friends? Tell you something Good friends, point out your lies, whereas old friends live and let live.
1: Good friends,
0: like and advise, whereas old friends love and forgive. And old friends, let you go your own way. Help find your own way. Friends. Don't make demands on you. Don't make demands on you. Well, don't make demands you can't meet. Well, what's the point of demands you can meet? Well, there's a time for demands, whether you miss the, the first one. If you decide, I get the first three minutes, on own own the last I'd it right, You would right. so right. okay. right. like to but I that was the end point, Hey, old friends, how do we stay? Old friends, who is the same? Old friends, how about friendship? One day comes having a laugh, a minute One day comes and they're a part of your life